If you want to open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, this morning we're going to be spending our time in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, looking primarily at Ephesians 4 verse 11 still, at the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Ephesians chapter 4, let me read the whole passage as you turn there, or if you have a handout, it's at the top of your handout. If you need a handout, if you just raise your hand, uh, somebody would love to bring you a handout if you need that. Ephesians chapter 4, let me start at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we thank you for your grace and your faithfulness, God. We thank you for uh, your word, that you have given us your word. I pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity uh, in your word this morning. I pray you would help us to hear your word. I pray by your spirit you would work in our hearts, that we might apply your word to our heart, that we might live in a way that would honor you and glorify you, Uh, Because you have been merciful and gracious to us in all that you have done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to continue looking at this section in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to remind you or tell you if you're joining us this morning, as we work our way through the book of Ephesians this morning, uh, I didn't stop and randomly decide to preach just these few words. But we are working our way through the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, you have a breakdown of the clarity, uh, a breakdown, not the clarity is broken down, but the book is broken down in clarity of first, what Christ has done for you, the reality of salvation. If you know Jesus and you love Jesus, it is because of his grace and his mercy to you, that Christ has come, that God has planned from eternity past, that his people would be called, that they would be saved, that they would be reconciled, that they would be united, that they would be brought from death to life and that in Christ they would be his and they would declare the wisdom of God to all creation that we exist together as a church and all Christians exist together as the church for the purpose of proclaiming the wisdom and the grace and the mercy of God and as Paul proclaims in the book of Ephesians led by the Holy Spirit the truth of the gospel he then goes on in Ephesians 4 through 6 to declare the truth of how we ought to live because of the gospel. And it's essential that it is in that order. As I begin preaching in Ephesians 4, I plan to frequently remind all of us what Ephesians 1 through 3 was and what Paul declared there, what the Holy Spirit of God declared through Ephesians 1 through 3 because it does us no good to try to be a faithful church, to try to be faithful husbands and wives, to try to be faithful citizens, to try to be faithful children, to try to be good people, if that is rooted or grown out of anything 
but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it is Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 that declare the truth of the gospel. And Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 declare how we ought to live in his love. How we ought to live by what he has done. And in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, we specifically see his continued care for his people. In 1 through 3, we saw his love for us and that he would call us, he would redeem us, he would buy us, he would free us, he would bring us back to life from the death of sin. And Ephesians 4, we begin to see his grace and continual care for us. And we're commanded to live in that care. We saw in the beginning of Ephesians 4, we're commanded to live in a certain character of life that would display his glory. We saw that we are to live under a certain confession of truth that would be the truth of what he's proclaimed. And then as we've moved to 11 through 16, we see that we have a community in which he has called us to be part of. And so last week we looked at his love in providing the apostles and prophets. It says he gave, so these are gifts from Christ. We looked a few weeks ago that everyone in the church is gifted for the purpose of Christ. But he gave specific gifts to the church for their good, for his love for them. And we often think of Christ's love as one that is, he loved us so much that he freed us from sin. But his love is more than that. His love is provisional. He has not just freed you from your sin, but He has provided for you truth to live by. He has declared that message by the apostles and prophets, the foundation of the gospel message. That's what we looked at last week. And we'll see this week, He continues to care for His people in the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Their continual provision and care for the church. He gave the apostles and prophets that we might be equipped with an an authoritative truth. That we would have an absolute truth to rest on. And that is the word of God written by the apostles and prophets that we hold fast to the word. And so he gave a foundation in the authority of them. He also gave grace in that he gave those to herald. And we'll look at the evangelist, the one who heralds the good news, the one who makes the good news known the one who proclaims the gospel of Christ, and that he gave and equips the church with shepherds and teachers. Notice I've said multiple times, he gave to equip the church. And so look at your Bible with me. Why am I using this language? Because we see in verse 12, what does it say? He gave these gifts for what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So he gave these gifts for the sake of equipping or giving the church exactly what it needs to do what God has called the church to do. He gave the necessary elements of care and provision for the church. And so he has given you provision for your care uh, to be one who is cared for. So let's look at these two gifts, the evangelist and the shepherd teacher. So if you have a handout, If you want to look at that first section, it says he gave heralds of the good news. He gave evangelists. Who are these evangelists? What what does this mean? As we looked at in detail of the apostles and prophets this morning, I want to encourage you to look with me at Acts 21.8, looking at the evangelist. The only named evangelist in Scripture is actually Philip. And if you look at Acts 21, verse 8, It says, uh, let me find it on my notes. There we go. It says, 
On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So we see something about this Philip, that he is an evangelist, and then also says he is one of the seven. So Philip is one of the seven. So we have to, as being good Bible students, we have to figure out who are the seven. And if you're looking to find out who the seven are, you look in the closest context, right? So who are the seven listed? Who, who is the author of Acts, the Holy Spirit, written by Luke? Who's he talking about as the seven? And as you read the book of Acts, you will see who the seven are. They're very specifically listed in Acts 6. As there comes a conflict between the Jews who have been saved and a conflict between the provision of the people, the apostles say, we need to appoint faithful men to take care of this work. And they appoint seven men. And the seven are listed in Acts chapter 6. You can look at verse 5 starting there. And you see these men listed. We have Stephen, Philip, and five other guys that I don't remember. And so as you look at this list, you see these men listed. And in the following two chapters, you see details of the lives of Stephen and Philip. In the following chapters, we see in 7 that Stephen is martyred. He's one of the first martyrs of the church. And the Jews, because he is proclaiming the message of Christ, he is one faithful in the Spirit. That he proclaims the truth, and therefore, because of his proclamation, the Jews are outraged. That they would say there is a God who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who has covered your sins, the one who will make you holy before God. And he proclaims to them from the whole Old Testament. And they pick up stones and they throw them at him until he is dead. And the result of this martyrdom is that the Jews, or rather the Christian Jews, scatter. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. That Saul being Paul, who is miraculously saved and the author of the letter that we're reading. But at this time, Saul is standing there and he approves of the execution of Stephen. And there arose great persecution against the church in all of Jerusalem. So where all of these Jews became Christians, where God is doing all of this massive work, all of a sudden there is massive persecution. And so what these Christians do is they scatter. And it says they scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stay in Jerusalem and they scatter. And then we see in verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So as they scattered, what did they do? They proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And then we see specifically in the life of Philip how he did that. So look with me at verse 5 of Acts 8, verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many were paralyzed, and lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. And so Philip goes and proclaims the gospel. Uh, Philip's faithfulness, remember Philip is not just doing this randomly, but by the providence of God, the Jews are scattering because of persecution. And what might feel like to some of them on the way, this might be the end. They're the faithful who are saying, we're scattering, but we're scattering to proclaim. And Philip is one, and as he scatters and proclaims the gospel, is proclaimed in Samaria. And then what you might know Philip best for as a student of the Bible, 
is Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip is on the road. God leads Philip by the Spirit. He leads him to this Ethiopian eunuch, and he has an amazing opportunity. This is an opportunity I wait for. I'll sit in a Starbucks waiting to see somebody reading the book of Isaiah. I haven't had this experience. But Philip has this experience where there's a man riding on a chariot, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip goes, this is is Philip's line. He goes, you understand what you're reading? He says, no, how can I unless someone explains to me? You wait for an opportunity like this, do you not? Do you wait for opportunities where you're just out about your day and someone's reading their Bible? And you're like, hey, do you understand what you're reading? No, I wish someone would explain it to me. Let me do that for you. Can I help you with that? I would love to help you with that. Philip has this amazing opportunity. And so Philip proclaims to the Ethiopian eunuch and he then accepts the gospel. He's baptized by Philip. And then Philip is gone. He leaves. And it says, as he left, what does he do? If you look at Acts 8.40, he says, But Philip found himself in Astos, and as he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip, this one man, is the only man in Scripture we have called the evangelist. And I want you to notice something about Philip's life. Maybe like me, when you think of Philip, you most frequently think, of Acts 8 and the Ethiopian eunuch. You think of this amazing opportunity. You think, man, I wish God would just put people around me sitting, reading the book of Isaiah and asking, who is this prophet writing about? Is it himself? Or is it someone else who will come? Do you long for those type of opportunities? Right? Do you often say, I'm just waiting for the opportunity to share the gospel? You're looking for it. You're hoping that somebody will ride by on a chariot reading the book of Isaiah. But I want you to notice something about Philip's life. Philip was not sitting around waiting for the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip was an evangelist. He was a herald. He was a proclaimer of the gospel. And before he had any kind of amazing opportunity, he had regular, faithful obedience. In Acts 6, we see that Philip became one of the seven because he was consistently, regularly faithful. He was a trustworthy man that the apostles trusted and all the people of God trusted. Philip was not some wild stallion of a man who was a lone ranger and did his own thing and just waited for crazy opportunities because that's what God had planned for him. Philip was faithfully, diligently, serving the things of God. He proclaimed the gospel everywhere he went. He didn't just wait for the Ethiopian eunuch, but he heralded and proclaimed everywhere he went. Read the account of Philip. It says he's scattering to Samaria, and what does he do? He preaches the gospel the whole way there. And after the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's sent away, what does he do? He's preaching the gospel through every town until he gets to where? Caesarea. And then you might think, then he just stops. But if you remember the first verse, the last words about Philip in the Bible, the book of Acts, as Paul is going around proclaiming the gospel, it says when they came to Caesarea, they stayed with Philip, the evangelist. And Philip remained the evangelist, a faithful man in Caesarea where he settled and dwelt. 
We see he had four faithful daughters gifted by the Spirit as prophetess. That they proclaimed the truth. That they lived there in Caesarea as evangelists. Spirit, the Spirit of God worked mightily in Philip. But it is not just when he proclaimed the truth to the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip was a man who lived to proclaim the truth. A man who could be, and the only man in Scripture who is labeled as the evangelist. So what does that mean for us? Does that mean there is just one evangelist? Does that mean he's gone, it was Philip, and that's all he did? I don't believe so. And again, it might be because we hear the word evangelist and we think something specific about that word. It is, again, a word that is made from a Greek word that we use. Evangelist, we think of someone who just shares the gospel, right? And that's right. That's exactly where this word comes from. It's the same root as the gospel, evangelion, or evangelion. Danny could say it better for us. I don't know if Danny knows how to speak Greek, but he has a good Spanish accent. He convinces me that he knows the Greek pronunciation when he says things. So the evangelion is the gospel. It's the good news. It is the heralded truth. And an evangelist is a herolder of the truth. They're one who cry out the good news. They're one that go to proclaim the truth. In the ancient world, an evangelist is one who would run to a city to give the news. And so they would run to that city to proclaim, we have won the war, it is over, we are free. Or we have lost the war, we will be enslaved, scatter and run for your lives. They were the heralds of news. And specifically in the Bible, we see they are the heralds of good news. Throughout the Word of God, you will see that they are the heralders. They are the proclaimers of good news. Evangelists are not meant to just be Philip alone. But Philip is the example. He is a biblical picture to all of us of what an evangelist is. A proclaimer and a herald of the gospel, faithfully proclaiming the truth in all of life and used by God in extraordinary ways because of his faithfulness to proclaim the truth. I want to give you just a little more to help you understand that this is the truth. This is the way you should live. This is what evangelism is. There's one other place that being an evangelist is listed. It's not given to a person like it is to Philip, but it is commanded to Timothy in his ministry that he is to do the work of the evangelist. If you look with me at first, uh, rather 2 Timothy, Chapter 4, verse 1, the work of an evangelist is to preach the word of God. To be a preacher of the word. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So he says, I am charging you, how? By God and Jesus Christ, who is the judge over everything. He judges the living and the dead. There is no earthly judge that compares to, to God. I command you by that God. I charge you to do this by that God and by His appearing and His kingdom, Christ has come. And what is the command? To preach the Word. And then He describes how He's to do that. He's to do that in season and out of season. He's to do that by reproving people, rebuking people, exhorting people. He's to do that in patience. And He's to do that to teach and instruct And he says he does that, and he is to do that, for the time's coming when people will not want to hear sound teaching, but will have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers 
to suit their own passion. And as we looked at last week, there is no day that describes that better than now as everyone is seeking to find a teacher who will satisfy them, a teacher who will say what they once said, rather than hearing the truth, to have the word of God preached, to hear what God has proclaimed forever by the apostles and the prophets. So he charges Timothy, he says, this is your job, this is what you are to do, preach the word. And then in verse 5, rather than satisfying the ears of those who will want to be satisfied, rather than saying whatever it is that people will want to hear, He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, be clear-minded, understand the truth, think about what is happening. Don't just be swept away with whatever is going on. Think about the truth, be sober-minded, endure suffering, be willing to suffer for the sake of proclaiming the truth. Be willing to say, people are going to oppose this, people are going to say they don't need this, people are going to say this isn't important, people might kill you but endure suffering. So he says, as for you, don't be like them. Preach the word. How do you do that? All the time, you reprove, you rebuke, you exhort, you do all that with complete patience from the word of God because people won't want to hear the word. They'll want to hear whatever they want, but you don't do that. You be clear-minded. You be willing to suffer. You preach the word, and this time he describes it as what? Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. He describes preaching the word as doing the work of an evangelist. To proclaim the truth, to proclaim the Christ, to be the herald of good news. Do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. I'm so thankful that there are many in our church who in their everyday life do the work of an evangelist. They recognize that preaching the word is not just what I do on a Sunday morning to all of us corporately but it is to live proclaiming the truth of the gospel to the world. It's to do so as you walk into a house to sell it or list it. It's to do so as patients walk into your office. It's to do so as you work alongside other men and women in labor. It's to do so as people walk into the building of your apartment complex to proclaim the truth to them. I'm so thankful for the many in our church who do the work of an evangelist. And aren't you thankful that people have? Aren't you thankful that someone was willing to proclaim the truth to you? Have you had those experiences where you're just trying to be obedient and faithful? You're not trying to do anything miraculous. There's no Ethiopian eunuch next to you. There's just another human being. In an ordinary day, And you're trying to be gentle and kind and patient. You're trying to be clear about the truth. And the grace of God uses those faithful acts of obedience to give opportunity to proclaim the truth. And you take the step to say and to proclaim the truth, not just with your actions, but your words. You be a herald of the good news and you proclaim the truth. And God is faithful. Aren't you glad that God was so faithful to you? That He had those who would herald those who would labor alongside you, those who raised you, those who randomly met you, those who were willing to say to you, let me tell you who the Messiah is. Let me proclaim to you the grace of God and salvation. It's in Romans 10 and quoting the passage we read this morning in scripture reading. It says, how beautiful are those feet 
that proclaim the gospel. How beautiful are those who walk around proclaiming the truth. And I am so thankful for those who proclaimed it to me and you who proclaim it to others. God has loved and cared for His people and that He has not just given the book. The book is essential. The foundation of the truth of the apostles and prophets is essential. But He has given evangelists. He has given those who will herald the message. He didn't just leave the book hidden on level 40 for some gamer to find. It's not a puzzle in life that you can find this book. He has left those who will proclaim the truth. And I want to encourage you. Your life might not be defined as the evangelist, but be a evangelist. Be those who live and walk like Philip. Be those who are a gift of God to the church. Be those who are the heralds to say, come and join God's people because Christ died for your sin and He is risen and you can be made alive again. He has loved His church and that He has not just given the foundation of the truth of the apostles and prophets. He has also given the love and grace of those who would proclaim. You were here and you were left here to be one who can cut through the darkness, to be one who can proclaim the light in the presence of darkness, to be one who by ordinary life and faithfulness to Christ, God uses in miraculous ways. And that is an amazing work of the Spirit. We often think, oh, I want to be used by the Spirit in such an amazing work. I want to see God do amazing things. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. After he proclaims the gospel, he says, concerning this salvation, concerning this gospel, concerning the truth of Christ, that he has come and died, that God has planned and purposed for his people. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours inquired and searched carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The foundation of the prophets as they looked and searched and wrote and were led by the Spirit to proclaim when he would come. And it said it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, those who are evangelists, those who are heralds of the King. And how do they do so? When you preach the good news, when you proclaim Christ, you're not doing so by the most clever evangelistic method. You you might use a method, but that's not what is giving you the ability to do so or the power in the message. You don't do so by the clever thoughts you have. Might you live like the prophets and inquire and search and think about the people that you know God has called you to serve and try to think of ways to help them understand? Yes. But when the gospel is preached, it is not by the power of man. It says those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels long to look into. In those most normal and casual feeling moments as you proclaim the truth of the gospel. It is not a spectacle to the world. But it is a spectacle to all of creation. As the angels long to understand what is God doing? How is He so merciful and so gracious? As they look into the grace of salvation. And as the Spirit empowers your words in what seems most simple to you. What most common to you? I don't remember how many times I felt like I was just having a common conversation with someone. 
And they would say, I remember when you said, and I'm like, I don't remember saying that. I don't even remember that. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. But what I'm confident of is that when the gospel is preached and a person responds, it's not because of the words used. It's not because of the cleverness of the speaker. It is because of the grace of God that through the simple words of the truth that Christ has come and He has died for sin and He has risen again that your soul might be saved, that you might have new life. Not just here in some change of life, but forever in eternity to be His. The Spirit of God works mightily. And He changes and transforms hearts through the work of evangelists which He has left for the good of His people that they might be called. If you look at the second point on the back of your outline, we see not only the evangelists, not only do evangelists care for the church of God, they are not the only thing He has left for His people. We saw last week He left the apostles and the prophets who proclaimed the foundation of the gospel by whom we have the authority of the Word of God. He gave the evangelists, those who would live their life to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And God has a paternal love for His people and He has left them with paternal care. God is their Father and like any good father, He does not leave His children without care. He says He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Again, generally my feeling about the Greek language is that, uh, as I've heard many men say and I think is helpful, the Greek should be like underwear. You should always keep it on. It's very important. It helps with stability. But you should rarely show it to people. That's, it's not necessary. There's no reason for people to see it. Because you are gifted and have the grace of God that you have the Bible in your own language and it's trustworthy. You're reading a Bible, you read. I want to list translations that I think you should read, but I won't. You could ask later, I'll tell you. But there are many trustworthy, good translations of the Bible. You can read it in English. You don't have to know the Greek to understand the Word of God. But there are times where the Greek is very helpful. It supports and helps us to understand, particularly as men that I believe are called to be shepherds and teachers. Uh, we want to understand and know so we can look at this. And so on the top of your outline, there's three Greek words. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce them for you. Generally, these words are translated in your Bible as elders, shepherds, and overseers. Depending on your translation, it might use the word bishop uh, for overseers. But these three words interchangeably speak of the same men. In the modern church today, we have this idea of all kinds of offices, all kinds of ministries, all kinds of necessities of the church, right? We think we need, we need the pastor, and then we need associate pastors, then we need a board of directors or a board of elders, and then we need lots of ministry leaders to run every department of the church. We need children's ministry people. We need outreach ministry people. We need all kinds of ministry people. And we need to fill these positions and we need to put people in these positions so that they have the authority to do that work. I believe the attempt at doing this was good intentioned. It was seeking to do exactly what the Word of God says elders are supposed to do here and apostles and evangelists were given to equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. That the saints are to be about the work of ministry. 
but I fear what we've done by creating so many titles that God never gave us that we have changed the ministry into a corporate organization that serves people rather than people serving one another. We have changed the church from what God has created it and given it to us as, as a body under the care of elders or shepherds and teachers served by deacons that are examples and all of the church serving together for the purposes of God that they might be equipped to encourage one another and grow with one another. And so while the intention, I I don't believe the intention of the American church in creating all these offices was to remove the responsibility from Christians to live as a Christian, I think the sad consequences of that have been so. So many come to a Sunday morning service to be served and not to serve. So many look at a Sunday morning service as the movie theater of the church. It's there to encourage me. I've got to go through my week and then I have to get back to get recharged. Christians are not to be those who are tossed to and fro by every teaching. They're not to be those who are dependent just on a morning service on Sundays. They're to be those who live together throughout their lives for the purposes of the gospel, who gather together to be encouraged and exhorted and rebuked by the word of God, by shepherds and teachers. The church is not to be a disorganized chaos, but it is also not to be an organized corporation made for the benefit of people alone. It is made by God for the care and instruction of his people. That you would not be one who just heard from an evangelist at one point, but you would be cared for and led and taught in the word of God by shepherds and teachers. And I know this makes many people uncomfortable if you talk about church leaders as fathers of the church. And it's because, again, that word has been abused in saying that there are these fathers, these men who hold some kind of authority outside of the apostles. Remember, the authority of the, of the church, the authority of the gospel is on who? The foundation that Jesus proclaimed, that the Spirit wrote by the hand of Paul, the apostles and prophets. Church fathers were men who were called to care for. They were shepherd teachers of the church. They were men who gave provisional care. And these men are described in the Bible as elders. We, as a church, choose the term elder to use because we think there's a lot of confusion in the word pastor. A lot of times people think of pastor as the CEO of the church, right? People come to our church and they say, Jake's the pastor. So Jake's the CEO, and then maybe there's a board under him, or maybe he's like Moses. He just leads the people directly from the statements of God. No, none of those are our designs of the church, and it's not God's design of the church. God's design for the church is that there would be a plurality of faithful shepherd teachers. Men who would lead together. Men who are not perfect, but are examples. Men who don't stand on their own wisdom, but stand on the word of God. Men who rest in the truth. And men who live as examples. And so I want to look at those two things with you this morning. Number one, that elders equip as examples. And number two, that elders equip as expositors. Elders equip as examples and expositors. And let me just make the point because I I think I mentioned things around it vaguely, but I didn't state it clearly. Shepherds and teachers, we would say this is speaking of elders because these words are used to speak of the same men. So if you look at your outline in 1 Peter chapter 5, 
as Peter exhorts the elders among you, notice the other phrases he uses to describe the elders. He says, the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock. The same root. These elders are to be shepherds. They're to be those who care for the people of God. He says, shepherd the flock among you. And how do you do so? Exercising oversight. The same root word is an overseer. One who makes directional decisions for the people of God. They oversee things. And so they are shepherds and they are overseers. They are elders. These are all speaking of the same men. Let me just, if you need further convincing from the word of God, let me just point to Acts chapter 20 for you. And you'll see the same thing. There's no description of just a pastor in the Bible. What there is a description of is a group of men who lead as elders. And in Acts 20, we see Paul say he is writing to the elders of the Ephesian church. And in Acts 20, 28, he says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you examples, made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The elders are again described as overseers, and this word care is the same word that is shepherd. To care for, to shepherd, to be the one who gives the flock what it needs, whether that be instruction or rebuke, whether that be protection or prescription of how to apply the word of God. And so throughout the Bible, we see the church is not led by a pastor. It is led by elders. And elders are shepherd teachers given for the good of people. I included on your, your outline, uh, a, uh, when we taught through the book of Titus, I made this infographic in order to help us to see what is an elder to be. And it says on the top how Titus starts, if anyone is above reproach. This is the same statement made in Timothy This is an overarching statement to say an elder or a leader of the church must be one who is above reproach, one who is not easily accused. This is not a perfect man, but this is a man who holds a certain standard of character as an example to the church, who's to live before the church like a father, like a man who others can say, you know what, I know he's not perfect, but I can trust him and I can watch his way of life. That's what we see commanded of leaders of the church in Hebrews 13, 7. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you and consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. It says you are to look to those who are your leaders. And I want you to notice what the leaders are commanded to do. It doesn't say look to those who are your leaders who have come up with really great strategies. It doesn't say, look to those who are your leaders, who are young and charismatic and know the right things to say. Look to those who are your leaders that are incredibly, incredibly gifted as speakers. No, it says specifically, look to those who are your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. An elder can be a charismatic man. He can be a gifted man. He can be an organized man. He can be a man who leads. He probably should be all of those things as those would be helpful to describe what is described as the qualities needed in an elder. But an elder doesn't speak from those things. He speaks by the word of God. He lives to let the word of God be known. And that's what we see at the end of Titus chapter 1, verse 9. He says, what is the job of an elder? 
He must be character qualified. He must be a man who does these things you see on the left and does not do or is not known for these things on the right. But what does he do? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are to be fathers to the church in a paternal way. They're to be those who care for the church. Because Christian, all of us, and I don't say this in trying to say, I'm, I'm your dad. That's not what I'm trying to say. There are men in our church who have been called as elders. Daniel Nunez, Danny Salcedo, and myself. But our prayer is that there would be more men. More men who are about the work of shepherding and teaching and would be called as elders with us or sent out to other churches. It is not that we say, we have everything that you need. We're not looking to be fathers of the church and that we want everyone in the world to follow us. We want to be faithful to those that God has brought to us, as faithful as we can, that we might equip them for the work of ministry, that they no longer would be tossed to and fro like children by every doctrine, that they would be established in the faith and faithfully serving God. That's our desire as elders. And it should be the desire of all elders. It should be what the men of God who lead the church want because they don't belong to him. Look again at Acts 20. Who does the church belong to? It says, care for the church, oversee the church. Why? Because it was obtained by the blood of Christ. It's not yours, it's his. Peter encourages them and they say, he tells them to shepherd and to oversee. And I would say, and we often say, to be an under-shepherd. Why? Because of verse 3. You're to be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We're not seeking to be men who lead, and we ought not to seek to be men to lead that the world might crown us. We seek to honor Christ because these people are bought by His blood. Pastors should be men that don't seek to make a name for themselves. They seek to proclaim the name of Christ. They're not living to be the shepherd. They're living to under-shepherd under the only shepherd, the only head of his church, the only head pastor, the only man who is always faithful, always right, always perfect, Jesus Christ. And in grace and love, he has left the church with elders, shepherds, teachers, to care for them. And they must be examples, and they must be expositors. I've, I've pointed out a few times already because I think it is essential for us. Maybe you haven't noticed I pointed that out, but the word expositor is one who proclaims the text. It's one who spends the time. A word we often use is ex, exegesis. Okay, so that's another big E word. Exegesis is to look at the word of God and to see what is there and to bring it out. To understand and to know. And to exposit is to proclaim that, is to make the word of God known, to teach it. To speak the word, or as Timothy, or as Titus is instructed in Titus, that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word it taught. Why? He must live to exegete the word, to live in the word, to know the word, to understand the word, that he might give instruction and rebuke, that he might shepherd the church to protect from wolves and to care that they are fed. And so this is the job of a shepherd an elder, a shepherd teacher, 
So he is one that is to live as an example. And he is also one who is to proclaim the word. Like an earthly father, my command I often think of out of Ephesians chapter 6 is to raise my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I am not a perfect father. Right? My wife and my children would attest to it. Don't ask my mother. She's confused about the kind of person I am. She thinks I'm perfect in all ways. I don't know how you go through 37, 38, 38, 38 years of life with me and come to that conclusion. She's deceived by love. Same kind of love in which God loves you, but he's not deceived. He cares for you and gives provision. He did not give you perfect men. Just like you're not a perfect mother or father, right? But you're commanded and you're responsible before God to care for these little children. You're commanded and responsible to be there, to point them to the truth, to give instruction, to give discipline and correction, to be those who say, look, I'm not your mom or dad because I'm better than you. I'm older than you. And by the grace of God, he has placed you under my care that I might give discipline and instruction. And I take comfort in Hebrews 12 where the Holy Spirit writes and says, earthly fathers do as they see best. But your heavenly Father loves you and disciplines you perfectly at all times. And so often in the discipline of my own children and often in shepherding of the church, I am doing and I am seeking to do and as elders we collectively seek to do what is best, what we believe the Word of God says. Do we do that perfectly? By no means. By no means. But we don't see leading the church as our right. We see it as our responsibility that we need to live in the fear of God. We need to seek to do that. And that's what elders are called to do. They're fathers to the church because we all need and are all provided by God, intended to be provided by God, an example to give us instruction and discipline. It is the essential purpose of family. Children are intended to have mothers and fathers who give them instruction, who help them to understand things, to help them to mature, to point out the truth to them. And Christians are intended to be part of the body, part of a family, and they are intended to have fathers, elders, who lead the church and care for them. It is not always the case in earth because of sin that children have mother and father. It is always the case biologically, but it is not always the case functionally. But in God's grace and design, that is the intended biological circumstance, that a child would have a mother and a father to love and care for them. And the same is true in the church. God has given the gift of elders, of shepherds and teachers to the church that they might, I'm just quoting from Ephesians 4, be equipped for the work of ministry, that they would not be tossed to and fro as children, but they would grow, and rather speaking the truth in love, they would grow to be those who love and proclaim Christ. Just like you do for your children, right? I just saw the other day somebody post, I wish my kids wouldn't grow up. And I often say the same thing when I'm looking at my young kids. And then I try to correct myself theologically. Because I know I don't have my children for my own satisfaction. My two youngest children are super cute right now. And every day we're like, isn't it a joy to have such tiny little cute humans at home? I have a niece that I just call an elf because she's like tiny and cute and laughs like an elf. And I think, oh, wouldn't it be great if she just stayed this way always? No, there'd be a huge problem. It would be horrible. They weren't created to be helpless little beings. They were created to grow from helpless little beings into 
those who would proclaim the glory of God in maturity and faithfulness. And that's the desire of parents. And it should also be the desire of shepherd teachers because it is the reason God gave them. So let me point out not just their example, not just the way they're to live, but their work, they're to be expositors. Again, Titus says they're to hold firm to the word. Why? So they might give instruction so that you might know the truth. Timothy says they must be able to teach. They are commanded in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, to do their best to present themselves as one approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. So how do you live as a leader who is approved by God and has no need to be ashamed? Well, it's right here in the passage. It says, rightly handling the word of truth. Acts 20, as we looked at earlier, Paul proclaims to the Ephesian elders, and he says, you need to care for the church of God. These are the people purchased by the blood of Christ. These are his people, and there will come from you men who seek to make them their people, who will lead people away, who will seek to draw disciples after themselves. And then Paul says in Acts 20, 32, and now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, that you must look to the word of God. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you and consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. We have three men currently, well, four men, if you count deacons, which we do, four men currently who have chosen to accept that their life will be a fishbowl. Chosen to accept that our church, not the whole world, any more than a normal Christian, but our church will look at their lives and they will say, help me to understand the Word of God. And I pray, and I believe we all pray and long, that at the end of our lives, Others might consider the outcome of our life, might consider the way that we have lived and imitate not our lives, not the way we've chosen to do everything, but what? Our faith. These men are to be examples and fathers of the faith. And as a good mother and father, what is your desire? That your children grow up to be more faithful, more God-honoring, more Christ-like, that your children would grow up to be teachers of you. Teachers that come to you and say, let me help you to understand the word of God. I long for the day that I can't see. And I plead with my children who are grown and far more intelligent than me, read the word of God to me. Help me to understand the truth. I wait for the day that I can call Judah and say, hey, I'm struggling with this passage. Can you help me? In the same way I call other men. We don't lead our children in hoping they stay immature and unfaithful. We lead them in hoping they will grow to be far more faithful than we have ever been. That they will proclaim the glory and the goodness of God in a far greater way than we have ever been. And that is the desire for shepherds and teachers. Not that they would get a bunch of people to follow them, but they would have Christians matured, equipped to do the work of ministry, to be faithful to Christ in all things. I want my children to be confused about who are elders in our church because they see so many faithful men around them. I want my children to understand all of the men of our church are faithful examples 
of the love of Christ. They might not all be called as elders, but they would all be those who lead and all those who could be looked to to say they've been faithful to the word of God. I want to imitate their faith and the outcome of their life. We do not want to be a church where people come on a Sunday morning to hear Jake talk and then go on with their life until next Sunday or maybe a couple Sundays after that and return to get filled back up. We want to be a church that lives in the way that God has lovingly provided it, that lives in the gifts that God has given. And let me remind you just of those that we've spoken of the last two weeks. The gift of the apostles and prophets the foundation of the word of truth, the gospel proclaimed by the men who Christ called, the gift of evangelists, those who live their lives wherever they go to take every opportunity to proclaim the name of Christ, to live faithful in all things and to see what God does with those faithful opportunities. And the gift of shepherds and teachers, those who would live as examples before the flock, not for their own exaltation, but to be those who make clear the word of God and proclaim the word of God for a purpose. And rather than review that purpose again, if you will just take your hand out or open your Bible, let me read to you what we'll spend the next few weeks on. His purpose in giving these gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Why has he given them, starting at verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Praise God that he has loved his church, that he has given gifts, that he has gifted his church individually as we saw in Ephesians 4, 7 that he has given specific gifts in the apostles and the prophets, evangelists who would proclaim the truth, and shepherds and teachers who would care for and instruct the church. So let's take a moment to pray in thanksgiving to what we have seen God do faithfully over the last six years. Pray and hope that God would continue to be faithful in our church and the churches of our valley to let us lean not on our own understanding or designs, but to lean on his provision and his gifts and his care that we might be the, a church and that the church might grow in unity in Christ, that they might be about the work of ministry, that they would speak to one another in love, that God might grow the body to proclaim his name over all the earth as it one day will be. And now he has left us to be the first fruits of that work. Let's pray that God would be so faithful to do so as we know he is faithful. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace and faithfulness. We thank you, Father, that you have not just loved us in calling us, but you love us and care for us. I thank you, Father, you have given the word of God. I think we can rest our hope in the word of truth. 
Thank you, Father, for uh, those men and women who proclaimed the gospel faithfully in my life and the lives of others here. Uh, thank you, Father, for, th- for the elders that I've lived under as examples. Uh, thank you for the men that have been faithful to you, men who have been like fathers to me. I thank you, Father, that you have given Daniel and Danny and myself responsibility in our church. I pray you would help us, God, and and bless our church, that we would not just be faithful to be elders, but as you have commanded in Timothy, that we would find faithful men and give them instruction and the word of God that they might teach others also. I'm thankful, Father, that you have provided a body that all of the saints are to be about the work of ministry that you've not just given the gifts of leaders, but you've given a gift that we would all participate in the proclamation of the truth and in life together. I pray you would help us to live for that. I thank you for the faithfulness you have shown in the last six years. I pray you would help us to be faithful. I pray you would help us to be those who lean on your word, rest in your word, that we would love one another, that we would live to see your name proclaimed. I pray, Father, that you would help us to endure suffering, to be sober-minded, to do the work of evangelists, to preach the word, that you might be praised in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.